One of my favorite characters in C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, is a character named Puddleglum. Puddleglum is a marsh wiggle. And marsh wiggles are known for speaking plainly about the realities of the world. And typically to see the world in its more negative expressions. And so a marsh wiggle, you can always expect to tell you the worst about things. And not to varnish over anything. When we first meet Puddleglum, it's in the book The Silver Chair. And he introduces himself by saying this, Puddleglum's my name, but it doesn't matter if you forget it. And then he goes on to describe himself or talk about himself to the main characters of that book, Lucy and Eustace. He says, good morning guests. Though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain or it might snow or fog or thunder. So let's make sure you don't get overexcited about good morning. When Jill asks him to help them to go find Prince Rillian, who's been missing now for ten years, Puddleglum responds with his usual plain-spoken realism. And he says, Well, I don't know that you'd call it help. I don't know that anyone can exactly help. It stands to reason we're not likely to get very far on a journey to the north. Not at this time of year, with the winter coming on and soon, soon and all. And in early winter, too, by the look of things. But you mustn't make that or let that make you downhearted. Very likely, what with enemies and mountains and rivers to cross and losing our way and next to nothing to eat and sore feet, we'll hardly notice the weather. <laughs> and if we don't get far enough to do any good, we may get far enough not to get back in a hurry. <laughs> For Puddleglum, no matter how hopeful the situation might be, there's always a downside. And you should always take into consideration that downside to keep yourself from becoming too happy, too elated. Well, that's the way some people live their lives. They always tilt toward the negative. They're always worried about the way things are or the way things could soon become. So they can't enjoy a good medical report from the doctor because they know, well, I've got to go again in six months. You never know what might happen then. They get a new car, they can't really enjoy that because they know, well, it's really not new anymore. It might break down. Someday I'm going to have to replace it. And it's always the negative that comes out in their thinking. Like Puddleglum, they have a, a built-in governor that tends to temper joy and gladness by considering the downside. And as a result of what they think is realism, they actually rob themselves from experiencing deep, genuine joy in this world. Now some people think that that's the perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we've studied through this book, there are things that you could pick out of it that certainly would suggest that kind of conclusion. In the first eight chapters that we've already worked our way through, we have heard the author repeatedly say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He highlights the fact that very often bad things happen to good people. And sometimes good things happen to bad people. He says in chapter 7 that it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party because after all, we're all going to die. 
And so you, you see these kinds of teachings in Ecclesiastes, and you could conclude that the author is just bent on not being too happy. As he evaluates life under the sun, under the sun, that is, life as we experience it without regard to God, he acknowledges that by and large, factor out God, life is meaningless. The world is fallen. It's not the way it should be. It's foolish to pretend otherwise. Yet, if you've been listening and been here over the last several weeks as we've worked our way through the first eight chapters of Ecclesiastes, we have seen, hopefully you've taken note of, that there really is no reason to live life under the cloud of gloom or to give in to despair. Ecclesiastes repeatedly admonishes us to live a life of joy in this fallen world. For example, in chapter 2, verse 24, we heard him say this, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Eat, drink, find enjoyment. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them, people on earth, than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil because this is the gift of God to man. Chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift from God. And then last week in chapter 8, verse 15, the author says, And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In one sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book about joy. It's a book that tells us, admonishes us, and tells us how to have joy in a real world, a broken world, a world that is not the way that it's supposed to be. So the joy that is commended in Ecclesiastes is not a superficial or contrived joy. It's not a joy that says, just put on rose-colored sunglasses and pretend that things are different than they actually are. Rather, it's a joy that says, look reality in the face and recognize there's more to reality than what you can see and experience with your senses and rejoice in the fact that God has given you life and given you opportunity in this world we're going to see that today as we continue our study through this book we come to chapter 9 this morning and we're going to look at the first 12 verses of ecclesiastes 9 you're using one of the bibles that's provided for you that's found on page 557 and it continues over to 558 I encourage you to take a copy of god's word and keep it open in front of you as i read through these verses we're then going to just walk back through them to try to understand what it is that God is saying to us today about living joyful lives in a fallen world. So hear God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, 
how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, and the good one is, as the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Again, I saw under the, that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who have knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What Coleth, the author of Ecclesiastes, is saying to us in this passage is that the world is fallen. Therefore, live your life with joy as a gift from God. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. So diligently seek to enjoy your life as God's gift. This passage divides itself quite naturally into three sections. And we're going to look at those sections one by one. The first is found in verses 1 through 6. The second in verses 7 through 10. The third in verses 11 and 12. It is the middle section that is most significant for our study this morning. Because in this middle section, we are exhorted with some urgency to take action in light of realities that are reflected in the first and third sections. Those two sections are simply ruminations on the world, reflections on the way things are. Verse 1, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. And then again in verse 11, Again I saw... Under the sun. So he's thinking, he's reflecting upon the way things are. And then in that middle section, starting with verse 7, did you notice the imperatives? Did you notice the commands? Go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. Honest reflection on the way that the world is. Life under the sun confronts us with the reality that this world is fallen. 
But the proper response to living in a fallen world is not to give in to despair and anxiety, not to take on a negative hue with all of your perspectives. Rather, it is to pursue joy in the way that God himself directs us to pursue. So let's look at it in the first section, verses 1 through 6, where we see that difficulties and death are unavoidable. In this life, difficulties and death are unavoidable. This is an honest reflection on life, and it shows us that everybody is subject to the same realities in this fallen world. Here the author says that he seriously considers all this. Do you see that in verse 1? What is he talking about? What is the all this? It's what he's just written about in the previous chapter, especially in that last verse. Look at verse 17 of chapter 8. He said, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So he's concluded that this world is inscrutable in so many ways. What God's doing in the world is beyond our ability to finally figure out. We can't put it in a nice, neat little box and say, oh, God's doing this, he's doing this, he's done that. This is how everything makes perfect sense to me. He said, I thought about it a long time. Man can't figure it out. We can't completely read the mind of God. We only know what he's revealed to us, and he hasn't revealed everything that we might want to know. So now then, he says in our text, as he seriously considers all this, he comes to some clear conclusions. He speaks about people who are righteous, people who are wise. I mean, that's, those are good things, right? Shouldn't we aspire to be righteous, to be wise? Isn't that what we want for our children? We tell them, if you're a good little boy, you're a good little girl, this will happen to you. You'll be wise so you won't have difficulties in life. We admonish those things. These are good characteristics. But what does he say? He says, righteous people, good people, they're all in the hands of God. They and their deeds, he says, are in God's hands. In other words, God decides what happens to them. God rules over them. He controls their lives. What is he saying? He's saying that this world, fallen and broken, is ruled by an absolutely sovereign God. God has the world in his hands. He created it, and he's meticulously involved in taking care of it, governing it moment by moment. Now, he makes that point. Then he adds a somewhat frightening thought to it. At the end of the verse, do you see what he says? Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. The events of life that happen to us cannot in and of themselves tell us what God is doing if God is acting out of love or hatred. If, if God is for us or against us. When you just look at the events themselves. Here's the point. You and I are not capable of making infallible judgments about the events of our lives on our own. Through our own powers of evaluation. We're dependent upon what God says in His Word. And submitting ourselves to what He says. When something happens in your life, you might ask yourself, well, is this an expression of God's pleasure? Or is this an expression of his displeasure? 
Was God against Job when he took away his wealth, took away his family, took away his health? Was God opposed to Job? Sure looked like it. I mean, Job thought so. His friends thought so. And Job died without knowing the whole story. And yet, the whole story is given to us because God's revealed. No, God wasn't opposed to Job. God was using Job for a great purpose. God was making a statement about himself through Job's sufferings. Well, if you just took the events of Job's life and tried to interpret whether God was for Job or against Job in the midst of those events unfolding, you see how Job's friends got to where they were going in their thinking. God is opposed to you. You must have sinned in some grievous way. What about Joseph? Was God for Joseph or against Joseph? This God who has everything in his hands, who meticulously rules the world when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. What do you think Joseph was thinking? Is God for me? God, why is this happening to me? Why are you opposed to me? It sure looked like God was opposed to him. He gets to Egypt and he gets involved in a household, a man named Potiphar, and Potiphar is blessed because of Joseph. So Joseph rises up into Potiphar's household and he's having a better life as a slave than what he had prior. And then Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to rape her. And he winds up in prison. Imagine what Joseph thought on that day. God for me? God against me? If you love me, why this? And he spends those years in prison. But the end of the story, we learn what? God was never opposed to Joseph. He was using all of those difficulties to put Joseph in the position to save Joseph's family, to continue the promise that God had made to bring about a Savior into the world. If you just tried to make a judgment based upon the events... You can't tell if God's acting for Joseph or against Joseph. What about Pharaoh? Pharaoh. Here's a guy that is the mightiest ruler of the mightiest nation on the face of the earth. And if you were trying to map Pharaoh's life, and you see the things that happened to put him in that position, where he was born, how he was educated, the opportunities that were afforded to him, so that he becomes Pharaoh, he is the top leader in the world mightiest empire in the world and he's number one in that empire you're thinking okay is that because god's for him or against him looks like god's for him right pharaoh gets what he wants does what he wants people tremble in his presence looks like god has really blessed pharaoh and yet what does god himself tell pharaoh in exodus chapter 9 verse 12 For this very reason, I raised you up in order that I might show my power and glory in you. And when God, through miraculous outpouring of power, destroyed the empire of Egypt and destroyed the army of Pharaoh and humbled Pharaoh, it's very evident. God wasn't for Pharaoh. He was opposed to him. You see, the point... Events in and of themselves do not provide for us everything we need to make a proper judgment. Is this an expression of God's pleasure? Or is this an expression of God's displeasure? Of course, the the greatest event 
is what took place in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you're just there, eyewitness, and you see this man being subjected to what he was subjected to by Pilate, by Herod, and then forced to carry a cross after he'd been brutalized, and then stretched out to be nailed on that cross, to be hung up naked, public spectacle, shame, subjected to what the Hebrews understood to be the very curse of God in that, would you say, oh, look how God's blessing Jesus. God must be for Jesus. No, it doesn't look that way, does it? Looks like God is opposed to Jesus. It looks like an expression of hatred from this sovereign being. And yet we know, because God has spoken, that in that event, the Lord was doing His deepest work of salvation. He wasn't opposed to Jesus. He was for Jesus. And He was using Jesus to bring about the salvation of sinners. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand, to back up and to think, to see realistically. We're just not equipped to make final judgments based upon the events themselves as to what God is doing. He goes on in verses 2 and 3 to say the same event, same kind of events, happen to all kind of people. Everybody experiences the same events in this fallen world. Verse 2, it's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears is as he who shuns an oath. You see, the, the worshiper, the non-worshiper, the guy that tries to live right, the guy that doesn't care to live right, the guy who is willing to vow a vow before God to keep his covenant, the guy that says, I don't, know, I don't want to vow a vow. I'm scared to vow a vow. It doesn't matter. Here, Ecclesiastes is saying, the same thing happens to everybody. Christians get cancer. Godless people become millionaires. His point is that this world is operating in such a way because of sin, because of its fallenness, that things happen, as he says in verse 3, that can only be described as an evil that is done under the sun. The same events happen to all. Being a certain kind of person does not exempt you from consequences of living in a fallen world. When viewed from this perspective under the sun, no regard for God, this is absurd. Why should somebody who's trying to do everything right suffer just as much as somebody who never cares if he does anything right. It's absurd. It's evil. Life in a fallen world means things do not always go the way that we think they should go. You cannot guarantee what will happen in your life by doing certain things or not doing certain things. Furthermore, this fallen world is sovereignly being ruled by God no matter what you do, how hard you try, you cannot control God. And you've got to deal with God. You've got to come to terms with the fact that your life is in the hand of God. If you fail to understand this point, this point that is taught throughout the whole Bible, you will find yourself either frustrated or fooled. 
You could be easily fooled if you think that by doing everything right, believing the right things, living the right way, you can guarantee only positive outcomes for your life. Because that way of thinking makes you susceptible to false teachers. People who come along and say, oh, that's right, but here's what you really need to be doing. Here's what you really need to be thinking. This is what you must pursue in order to guarantee this outcome. These false teachers often offer to you the key to a successful life, whether they define that as health or wealth or happiness. If you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. If you just sow enough seed money into this project, follow these rules, then your child will come back from the far country of having turned away from the Lord. So on and so on. These false teachers captivate minds that have been improperly taught about the realities of the world as God sets it forth in Scripture. That's how they can thrive. There's so much unbiblical thinking about this point. If you believe that you can control the outcomes of your life or what you do or believe, then you're setting yourself up to be frustrated and feeling like God has let you down when things don't go the way that you expect them. I've done everything right. We catechized our kids. We went to church. We tithed. Why this? The reason is that the world is not a machine. God is not a machine. He is ruling and overruling in this world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And what he calls us to do is not put our confidence in our ability to control, but rather to put our confidence in him who does control. He calls us to be humble before him, to acknowledge that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The God who rules this world is a personal being. He sovereignly exercises his prerogatives as he deems best. And we need to come to terms with that. Everyone is subject to the same realities in this fallen world. That's an important point to acknowledge. But the text goes on to say, in the middle of verse 3, that everyone is deeply affected by sin. Look at this. He says, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What he's saying is that sin has ravaged us. It's ravaged us. Do you see the way he points out the depth and the breadth and the length of sin and its impact in our lives? He said it comes from our hearts. It's in our hearts. The hearts are full of evil. Not just our actions. Sin's not just what you do. Our thoughts, our affections, our intentions. It's breath full of evil. Overflowing with evil. It's length while they live. There's not a day going to come in your life before you breathe your last breath, that you can say you're sin-free? It's not going to happen. Sin is in us. And he says the full reward for sin is death. After that, they go to the dead. This is the inescapable, unalterable, unavoidable consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. And it's universally true throughout the whole human race. The reality of sin and its consequences is absolutely foundational to thinking rightly about life. I think that is why the first three chapters of Genesis is absolutely essential for you to read and accept 
as truth if you're going to make sense of this world. God created the world upright. He created man and woman in the world upright. Adam and Eve sinned against God and they brought this separation between God and mankind. And When Adam sinned, he wasn't sinning just for himself. He was sinning for the whole human race that he represented. And he brought the consequences of sin not just to himself, but to all of humanity. Why Paul writes what he does in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men, because all sinned. The Bible says, all of us sinned in Adam. He represented us. He was the one that God created to be the head of the human race. And so all of our prospects were put upon His shoulders. And when He fell away from God, we fell with Him. So now then, we live in a fallen world as fallen people. And we have to deal with those realities. And closing your eyes to those realities will not bring you joy, will not bring you success. They will only set you up for being fooled or frustrated. That reality of sin is precisely the reason that Jesus Christ came into the world. Adam was called to represent us, to obey God, and then to secure life forever with God. He failed at that. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was sent to do what the first Adam failed to do. And the second Adam, by his obedience, reversed everything that the first Adam, by his disobedience, brought upon this world. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we have a Savior. And the only way we will be made right with the God who rules this world is through that Savior. It's by trusting Christ. It's by recognizing I'm a part of this fallen race. I am a sinner. What the Bible says about me is true. I am on the way to eternal damnation, death, and I need to be rescued. And there is a rescuer. There is a Savior. He came into the world. His name is Jesus. If you trust Him, he will save you. He'll save you. He'll make you right with your Creator. Though death is coming, Koalith goes on to say, while there is life, there is hope. I love this passage. Verses 5 and 6, he says, death is final. The dead know nothing. They have no more reward. Their memory is forgotten. The memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have all perished forever. They have no more share and all this done under the sun. When you die, you're dead to this world under the sun. When you die, you will not experience anything else in this life as it is now. That's his point. However, there's a difference between being already dead and not yet dead. The living know that death is coming. And they can make preparation for it. So he quotes this proverb that a living dog is better than a dead lion, a lion kingly beast, dog, regarded as a scavenger. But as long as the dog has breath, he's better off than the lion who's died. For the living, verse 5 says, no, they will die. But he who is joined to the living, verse 4 says, has hope. Hope. Hope of what? Hope of being reconciled to his creator. Hope of experiencing forgiveness of the sin that has ravaged his life. Hope of being made right with the God against whom he's rebelled. 
rather than to pretend that you can control everything that happens in your life or throw your hands up in despair because you can't, what we're called upon to do is to listen to the Word of God to see what He has to say about how we should respond to this world, both blessings and difficulties, as long as we have breath. To see every beating of our heart as another opportunity, another hope, another possibility of encountering this God and being reconciled to Him. Jesus told us how we should respond to tragic events. In Luke chapter 13, His disciples come to Him and they tell Him about some tragedies that have happened locally. And and Jesus says to them, those 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, probably because of a high wind, imagine that, you're just walking by and boom, tornado, boom, you're dead. He says, do you think that they were worse sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He says the tragedies in life are a parable. They're a parable to us. They're warning shots fired across the bow. Whenever something comes into your life that is difficult, that is hard, whenever something comes into the life of someone you know or you read about that is difficult and hard, if you're breathing, there's hope. That difficulty is designed by God to call you to repentance. To call you to think seriously about these truths. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. I need God. I need forgiveness. I need to be reconciled. I need to turn away from the foolish ways I've been living. Do you see that? Do you think that way? You can't fully evaluate all the events that come into your life. The one thing you can do based on the authority of Jesus Christ when trials come into your life or when trials happen around you, you can hear God saying, repent. Repent. It's a foretaste. It's a preview of coming judgment. It's not true only of trials. It's also true of blessings. Blessings. Paul writes in Romans 2, don't you know that the goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance. God blesses you. Good health. Good relationship. Opportunity. Put something in your hand maybe you weren't expecting. You see that? Believing what the Bible says, that this is from God. He's the one who's ruling over this. How should you respond to that? You should respond to that, as Scripture says, as a token of God's goodness and mercy Love, favor, willingness to receive you. Accept blessings as a call from God to repent of sin, to repent of doubting His goodness, and to entrust yourself to Him, heart and soul. You see, no matter what happens to you in life, good things, bad things, they're all designed to call you to turn away from sin and to be reconciled to God in the way that He's provided through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is how we're to live in a world that's not the way it is, should be, in the world that's not the way it should be, and as people who are not the way we should be. Every day, as long as there's breath, there's opportunity to repent. Some of you are here this morning, and you've heard this before. You know the truth of the gospel. You know the truth about yourself. You know what the Bible says about you. You know what the Bible says about heaven and hell and God. And 
for whatever reason, you, you have concluded in your mind that it's okay to keep on living the way you're living. I want you to hear what God, the Bible says to you today. As long as there's breath, there's hope. And there's hope for you today. You don't know when that hope is going to come to an end. It will. There will come a terminus to your life. But before that point, God has you here now to think about these things from his word to call you to repent. To call you to turn from the way you've been living and entrust yourself to him. Why won't you turn to him? Why won't you come to take God at his word and bow yourself before him and acknowledge that he is God, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that you need him. If you'll trust Christ, he'll accept you. He's willing to accept you. Parents, some of you have children that are in the far country spiritually. You've prayed for them. You've labored for them. You've done the best you know to do for them. And yet they're just hard-hearted to the gospel. The living have hope. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Keep pleading with God for them. Keep witnessing to them. Keep talking to them. Keep the doors of, of communication open to them so that you can try to point them to Christ because as long as there's breath, there's hope. There's hope. Sin has ravaged us. Sin brings consequences to this world. Sin causes things not to be the way they're supposed to be. But as long as we are among the living, we have hope of seeing sin overcome in our lives and ultimately in this world. Well, not only are there difficulties and are, are difficulties and death unavoidable, our text goes on to say in that last section, verses 11 and 12, that life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. Unpredictable things happen. That's verse 11. He gives us five examples of those things. Under the sun, in this world, fast people lose races. Strong people lose fights. Wise, smart, knowledgeable people can be hungry, poor, and despised in the world. Now, we've seen this, haven't we? We've seen things that have happened the way that nobody expected them to happen. You see it in sports all the time. We call them upsets, right? In the 2000 Olympics, there was a great upset. came out of Sydney where the Olympics were held that year. A man by the name of Ruland Gardner, he was a very humble 29-year-old Wyoming farm boy. And he didn't seem to have a chance when he got to the finals against Russian Alexander Carolin in the Greco-Roman super heavyweight wrestling match. Carolin was undefeated. He hadn't lost a match in 15 years. He'd won three consecutive gold medals at the Olympics, seven consecutive world titles, he had not even given up a single point in international competition for a decade. Gardner hadn't even won the NCAA championship when he was in college. Yet he won. He won. He beat the stronger, bigger Olympian. That's the point that's being made here. We see this happen all the time in a variety of spheres, don't we? These Goliath and David stories. David's not expected to win. No reason you'd think he win, would win. You wouldn't put your money on him. And yet he wins. It happens in business. It happens in education. It happens in athletics. Unpredictable things happen. No matter how much you think the outcome is assured, sometimes things occur that are completely unforeseen. In verse 12, he says that's true of death. As long as there's breath, there's light, there's hope, 
But death comes unexpectedly. We know it's coming. His time. But we don't know when it's coming. And he compares it to birds being trapped in a snare where a special trap's been set for them. When they go there, they're unsuspecting, they're eating, and then suddenly the noose tightens around them and they're ensnared. To fish being netted, the fish are just having another regular day. And suddenly, net, they're being dragged up into a boat. They didn't anticipate it. He says, that's the way death comes. Very often, you cannot anticipate your death. You can't pinpoint the moment of your death. He's simply reiterating in this passage what he has said elsewhere, that life is unpredictable. We cannot control life. Sometimes we forget that because the world operates, for the most part, in an orderly fashion, that we cannot manipulate it with guaranteed outcomes. God's the one who rules the world. And our lives are dependent upon God. We must come to terms with this truth and recognize that we cannot manipulate God for our own purposes. And if we attempt to do that, then it will save us from thinking, you know, if I only trust God, if I only have enough faith, then everything is going to turn out easy and just right for me in this life. Brothers and sisters, that's not what faith is. That's not what the Bible means by faith. Faith doesn't try to manipulate God. Faith confidently rests in God. Faith in Christ doesn't enable us to control our future. Faith in Christ enables us to move boldly, confidently into our future. This is reality of life in a fallen world. Given that then, how should we live? How should we respond to the certainty of death, the unpredictability of life? Well, verses 7 through 10 answer that question. We should enjoy the life that God has given to us. Contrary to any kind of pessimistic, pessimistic or morbid outlook on life, our text here admonishes us in these verses in rather stark language to get serious about pursuing joy. There's a series of imperatives that indicate there's some urgency about what we are to do in light of the way the world really is. Eat and drink with a merry heart. That's verse 7. Bread and wine, that's the, the categories that are used. These were uh, things that would be standard foods for enjoyment in ancient Israel. He's not making a point here about alcoholic beverages. He's just simply saying, whatever you enjoy when you sit down to a meal, have those things and enjoy it. Make your heart merry by enjoying these blessings with the understanding God's provided them for you. You know, I'm, I'm sometimes amused at the way that uh, coffee has gone in our day. You know, when I was younger, you, you had 25 cents, you could get a cup of coffee anywhere. But I go into Starbucks and I'm paralyzed. You know, mocha, frappa, super daughter with a dash, skinny, you know, vente. I, I just said, can I just have a small cup of coffee, you know? And sometimes I'm what? I don't know if we have that, you know? It's just, but with that, with that, those who are coffee connoisseurs, this text is saying, man, enjoy your coffee. Enjoy it. You know, get the dirty hippie. I just learned that's a coffee drink, right? 
and, and drink it and enjoy it. Have a piece of pie. Enjoy it. That's, that's what we're being admonished to do here. To delight in the things that God has provided for us. Do this. You see why? Because God has already approved what you do. Now is this just a blank check? Say, hey, look, you live any way you want to do, want to do whatever you want. No, it's not at all. What he's saying is God has made the world to be enjoyed. In Genesis 1 and 2, he created everything and he called it good. It's good. He reiterates this throughout the scriptures. For example, in 1 Timothy, when Paul's writing to Timothy, in verse 4, he says of chapter 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Enjoy the good gifts that God puts into your hands. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So the first point there, I can control the world if I get a big enough bank account. I can make my life work if I have enough wealth. He says, warn those rich people not to think that way, but rather to put their faith in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's given us everything to enjoy. If it's not sin, God hadn't forbidden it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. That's the call of the Scripture. We are responsible to enjoy creation in responsible ways by relating to it in the way that God intends. Have you ever thought about the fact that God didn't just create appetite, He created taste buds? He intends for us to enjoy food. That's why taste buds exist. He tells us in verse 8, we should dress up and enjoy life. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. He's saying don't go around like you're always on the way to a funeral sackcloth and ashes dress in your best clothes dress in the clothes that that you feel good in just enjoy life he's saying be free in this enjoy the way that god has provided for you in this world live with joy and gladness this is the old testament counterpoint to what paul writes to the thessalonians in first thessalonians 5 rejoice always always god created you he created the world He's not against your joy. He created joy. And then in verse 9 specifically, enjoy life with your wife. The wife you love. You know, for those who are married, certainly this means you are to enjoy your spouse and living life together with your spouse. Recognize the goodness and kindness of God in giving you a partner and giving you marriage. It can apply to those who are not married, certainly. So if you're not married, don't think, well, this verse has nothing to say to me. No, he's saying, enjoy relationships that are close to you. Enjoy doing life with those near you. Maybe a brother, a sister, a friend. Recognize that this relationship is a gift from God. Take advantage of opportunities to enjoy the good things God provides with those who are dear, you, dear to you. Now, having said that, husbands your husband do you hear what this is saying enjoy your life with the wife 
you love. That doesn't need a lot of interpretation, does it? It's commanding us to enjoy life with our mates. We are specifically instructed to do so. So I just want to ask the husbands here, are you doing that? How are you doing that? What attempts have you made the last week or two to enjoy life, specifically enjoy life with your wife? Well, you've got to find out, first of all, what she enjoys. And it may be something as simple as just going for a walk. Maybe something, sit down and have a cup of coffee together. Talk. It, it may be just getting away for a few hours or, or maybe for a few days. But doing something intentional that you are thinking, God has called me to enjoy this relationship of marriage with the wife that I love. In verse 10, he goes on and he broadens out the same admonition telling us to do whatever we do wholeheartedly. Listen to this. This is a great verse, isn't it? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. What is he saying? He's saying live passionately. Don't just shuffle through life. Don't just mark time. Whatever you're doing, whatever you find to do, do it. Put yourself into it. Find something worth giving your life to, then give your life to it. Here's some real wisdom for living according to God's will. Have you ever found yourself getting tied up or paralyzed and thinking, I don't know what God's will is. I don't even know what God's will is. Here's God's will. What are you doing? What are you doing right now? What are you doing? What are you doing in your life? Is it sinful? If it's sinful, quit. Repent. If it's not sinful, do it passionately. Go for it. That's what we're being told to do here. Whatever you find to do, do it with all your might. You know, you may not be in your dream job, but that's no reason for you not to give yourself wholeheartedly working when you're on the job. Maybe you're not in the course of study that you hope to be in one day, but that doesn't mean you just slack off and just kind of skate by in your assignments. No, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher in the colonial era of America. He was used of God for preaching Great Awakening and writing in books that still are valuable today. When he was 19 years old, he drew up a list of 70 resolutions that he wanted to live his life according to. Number six says, Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. That's pretty good counsel. This is what Jesus tells us to do in John chapter 9, verse 4. He says, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. Live boldly. You know, there is within conservative Christianity a strain, a stream, that seems to be very fearful and, and doubtful of enjoying created things. Some conservative Christians get a little bit nervous when you start talking about enjoying food and drink and sex and other created things. Because they have seen those things misused, and certainly any good gift can be abused and misused sinfully. And they think we can't get too involved in those things if we're going to be spiritually minded followers of Jesus. That's simply not true. 
It's not true. It's not Christian. We are to recognize that this world is not ultimate. Created things are not ultimate. It's fallen, not the way it's supposed to be, but God created it's good. And the things that He puts into our hands, the created things, we are to enjoy. And whatever we do, we're to do with all our might. That's how we respond to a world that has fallen. Rejoice. The good things God's given you. We should see this clearly. We should seek to honor the instructions of God's word here by enjoying immensely the things that he puts into our hands. I mean, we're commanded to do that. We're commanded to do that. So are you pursuing joy in a fallen world? Without thinking that this world is ultimate or that it can ultimately bring you satisfaction. That's how we're called to live. The world has fallen. We need to recognize that and withstand every temptation to look to the world to provide ultimate satisfaction to us. But neither are we to expect that somehow we can make this world work out just the way that we think it should if only we do certain things. Rather, we're to recognize that God created the world, He continues to rule the world, and He does so in ways that we are called to enjoy. So God calls his people to take joy seriously. To pursue it by using the gifts he's provided for you with thanksgiving. Remembering that he is the source of all good gifts. Enjoying life in this fallen world is something that we as followers of Jesus Christ ought to be able to do far better than anyone else. Why? Why? Not because we think that if we do everything just right, we'll get just what we want. But because we know the one who created this world, who is ruling over it even in its brokenness, who's going to bring it to a completion when everything will be made right. And we can depend upon him. And we can take him at his word, knowing he is ultimate, and enjoy the temporary things that he's provided for us in the meantime. We can enjoy this world and leave our lives confidently in his hands because he's given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to live this way. We acknowledge that so easily and quickly we get distracted and knocked off course and we want your spirit to guide us according to your word that we would live as people who take advantage of the good things you put in our hands without grasping those things and, and fearing them being taken from us and thinking the world is ended if they are. Help us to see Christ as ultimate and to put our hope in Him and then to live as joyful followers of His to whom you have created and given every good thing for us to enjoy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.